It's Monday, November 6th. I'm Josie Duffy Rice. And I'm Trayvall Anderson, and this is What a Day. On the show, Trump takes the stand today in New York civil case against him and his company for fraud. Plus, elections are happening tomorrow in several battleground states. And we'll tell you how to get info and how you can help get out the vote wherever you are. But first, on Sunday, Israeli troops closed in on Gaza City, the main city on the Gaza Strip. Over half a million people lived there before the latest conflict began in October, and it's extremely densely populated. The Israeli military said they expect to enter Gaza City within 48 hours and stated that they have essentially divided the region into two, telling reporters, quote, today there is North Gaza and South Gaza. Currently, there are 1.4 million people internally displaced across the area, according to the UN. Yeah, we know that they've been kind of gearing up for this invasion for a couple weeks now. Can you tell us more about their attempt to surround Gaza City? Yeah, so Israeli troops are approaching the region from three directions. They're coming from the northwest, the northeast, and the south. And according to the Washington Post, satellite imagery shows that Israeli troops have been pretty successful and surrounding Gaza City along the southern edge, but that troops moving in from the northwest and the northeast have not made a significant progress, in part because of, quote, heavy fighting along those routes. And so it seems like Israel might be slightly overstating their success in getting this far, but it is still likely that Gaza City will be surrounded in the coming days. Yeah, and I know there was also another communications outage in Gaza. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, absolutely. You may remember that the other two communications outages, one lasted 36 hours, another one lasted a few hours. As of record time on Sunday evening at 9.30 Eastern, Gaza seemed to be under yet another blackout, meaning that there is no ability to communicate due to the internet and phones being down. That makes it, of course, very difficult to get information about what's happening there. Some of what we know about the area comes from sources outside of Palestine. For example, the World Food Program said on Sunday night that there are only about five days left of food in Gaza. The World Food Program's executive director, Cindy McCain, yes, that Cindy McCain, this was news to me today, but Mm -hmm. she is now the executive director of the World Food Program. And she says that the situation there is catastrophic. Yeah, I feel like aid workers since almost the beginning have been saying that they need more resources, more food than they have for the level of tragedy that folks are living through. And we've also heard more news about rockets being fired into Israel. What's going on with that? Yeah, so apparently more rockets are being fired into the north and central areas of Israel, including Tel Aviv. Hamas has said that they are launching these rockets due to the continuing death and destruction in Gaza. According to Israel, these rockets have not killed anyone or really caused any damage, thanks to the Iron Dome, which is the missile defense system in Israel that uses missiles to intercept rockets before they can cause damage. It's worth noting that one of the Iron Dome missiles malfunctioned this weekend and caused a small fire, though no major damage and no injuries or deaths. Gotcha. All right. So are there any other key updates from the ground this weekend that we should be aware of? Yeah. As you know, things are changing kind of constantly on the ground. But as of Sunday night at record time, there are some other pretty key updates. The first is that the conflict at the Israel-Lebanon border has gotten more deadly. This weekend, an Israeli missile hit a car in southern Lebanon, which killed three young girls and their grandmother. The car held the family of a Lebanese journalist, and the journalist was in the car ahead of the car that was hit. So it's a little unclear if, like, they meant to hit the car with the journalist or 
what's going on there, but mm-hmm. it was a pretty big deal and somewhat of an escalation given what's going on on that border. And according to reports, attacks by Hezbollah in retaliation for this attack on the car killed one Israeli. So it's unclear if the Israeli was a civilian or a soldier. We don't know much about them. Also this weekend, Israel said that they paused attacks for a few hours in order to allow people to evacuate from some of the areas they were planning to hit. But according to the New York Times, many people did not get information about that evacuation because of the lack of access to phones and internet. And others were scared to evacuate due to the ongoing attacks among evacuation routes. As one man interviewed by the New York Times said, quote, I want to leave, but I don't want to lose my life on the way. It is better to die at home than to die in the street. Mm. Yeah. Meanwhile, Israel also rejected calls for any significant pause in their attacks on Gaza, as many across the world have called for, as you know. And it is worth noting that Israel's claim that they gave people a chance to evacuate is kind of undermined by something else that happened this weekend. So Israeli warplanes hit two refugee camps in Gaza on Sunday, killing at least 53 people. One of those refugee camps is a Megazi refugee camp, where, according to the Associated Press, Israel's military had, quote, urged Palestinian civilians to seek refuge. So they had said that this would be a safe place for Palestinians to go. Mm. And then they bombed it and they killed over 50 people. One AP reporter saw eight dead children after that attack, including a baby. And one person in the camp said, quote, it was a true massacre. All here are peaceful people. I challenge anyone who says there were resistance fighters here. Yeah, so that's the situation on the ground. Now let's turn to the latest in the diplomatic efforts of the Biden administration. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has been back in the region over the last few days, meeting with a host of leaders in hopes of containing the fallout from the war with Hamas. The administration has been very clear that they don't want the conflict to spread. And so the White House is trying to keep it that way. I'm going to focus on two of the stops on Blinken's tour, those in the West Bank and Iraq. Yeah, so this is kind of big news. Let's start with the West Bank. What happened there? So Blinken met with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas for the second time since Hamas's inciting attack a few weeks ago. In the meeting, Abbas called for an immediate end to the war, the acceleration of humanitarian aid for civilians in Gaza, and he demanded that the attacks happening in the West Bank by Israeli soldiers and extremists end. Blinken basically reiterated the administration's stance of being committed to getting aid to folks, and he he, quote, made clear that Palestinians must not be forcibly displaced as a result of the conflict. As you already mentioned, though, well over a million Palestinians have already been displaced. Blinken also discussed with Abbas his efforts to get Israeli leaders to, quote, minimize civilian harm. He also went to Iraq. Can you tell us about what happened there? Yeah, so Blinken made an unannounced stop in Baghdad where he basically issued a warning, particularly to Iran and its proxies like Hezbollah. Take a listen. I made very clear that the attacks, the threats coming from militia that are aligned with Iran are totally unacceptable and we will take every necessary step to protect our people. We're not looking for conflict with Iran. We've made that very clear. But we'll do what's necessary to protect our personnel, be they military or civilian. So, you know, he's basically telling them, you know, run up, get done up. If y'all act crazy, we are going to use the full power of our military in response. 
And then there's one other statement Blinken made that I want to highlight. This one was during a press conference with his Egyptian and Jordanian counterparts in Jordan. And it's him talking about the images of Palestinian children being killed in the conflict. When I see Palestinian boy or girl pulled from the wreckage of a building, it hits me in the gut, just as it hits everyone's gut. And I see my own children in their faces. And as human beings, how can any of us not feel the same way? And as you mentioned earlier, he said he wanted to, quote, minimize civilian harm. He did not say he wanted a ceasefire, which to be is clear way of minimizing at least some harm and what so many of the protests across the country and globe are calling for, including the massive, massive protests in D.C. this weekend, right? Yeah, the D.C. demonstration was gigantic, but right, it's not only protesters who are calling for a ceasefire. Other elected officials have been joining calls for a ceasefire. We mentioned last week that Dick Durbin has become the first senator to call for a ceasefire. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would just share what Blinken had to say directly to this point about ceasefires. It's our view that a ceasefire now would simply leave Hamas in place, able to regroup and repeat what it did on October 7th. And so it is important to reaffirm Israel's right to defend itself, indeed its obligation to do so, and to take necessary steps so that October 7th can never happen again. So he went on to reiterate that how Israel does what it does is important, you know, minimize civilian harm. But that is basically the official response on calling for a ceasefire right now. I guess I'm a little skeptical, right, about this minimize civilian harm thing, right? Because we just mentioned that 53 people died at a refugee camp Mm -hmm. where people were specifically directed to seek refuge by the Israeli government. They were told to go there to stay safe, and then that space was bombed. I don't think that's minimizing civilian harm. We're seeing a lot of civilian harm. We're seeing, you know, almost 9,000 people killed at this point. Yeah, it's very wide-ranging, the level of destruction that's happening, right? Right. But I think what we're all noticing is this sort of kind of tightrope that's being walked here sociopolitically, right? The both-and approach that the administration is striving for, despite it not really landing the way I think they wish, particularly among many progressive-minded people. And this really brings me to former President Barack Obama, who tried to thread a needle of his own in a recent interview with Pod Save America, also with varying levels of success in terms of audience response. Take a listen to this clip. It's a little long, but I think it illustrates this point so well. If there's any chance of us being able to act constructively to do something, it will require an admission of complexity and maintaining what on the surface may seem contradictory ideas, that what Hamas did was horrific and there's no justification for it. And what is also true is that the occupation and what's happening to Palestinians is unbearable. And what is also true is that there is a history of the Jewish people that may be dismissed unless your grandparents or your great-grandparents or your uncle or your aunt tell you stories about the madness of anti-Semitism. And what is true is that there are people right now who are dying 
who have nothing to do with what Hamas did and what is true, right? I, I mean, we can go on for a while. And the problem with the social media and trying to TikTok activism and trying to debate this on that is you can't speak the truth. You can pretend to speak the truth. You can speak one side of the truth. And in some cases, you can try to maintain your moral innocence, but that won't solve the problem. And so if you want to solve the problem, then you have to take in the whole truth. And you then have to admit nobody's hands are clean, that all of us are complicit to some degree. I look at this and I think back, what could I have done during my presidency to move this forward as hard as I tried? I've got the scars to prove it. But there's a part of me that's still saying, well, was there something else I could have done? That's the conversation we should be having. Not just looking backwards, but looking forward. And that can't happen if we are confining ourselves to our outrage. I would rather see you out there talking to people, including people who you disagree with. If you genuinely want to change this, then you've got to figure out how to speak to somebody on the other side and listen to them and understand what they are talking about and not dismiss it. Because you can't save that child without their help. Not in this situation. That is one of the more, I think, remarkable things that any elected official has said about this situation. It doesn't actually sound that remarkable, given that people are being a little bit, I think, more vocal about some of the complicated dynamics right now. But certainly among elected officials or former elected officials and certainly former presidents, like that's got to be one of the more nuanced, clear things I've heard. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I don't think he needed to come for, you know, the social media girls <laughs> like that. <laughs> what did TikTok do? Exactly. TikTok's like, now why I'm in it? Why would I do? <laughs> also, I think, right, social media has been a very useful tool in the dissemination of, yes, misinformation and disinformation and all of that, but also actual positive information, right? Particularly some information that the broader media ecosystem has like failed to properly contextualize or provide. Right. So he didn't need to come for, you know, the TikTokers like that. But you can definitely tell that he and so many others are trying to maintain kind of the political position, which is support Israel, ally, all of that, while also trying to recognize the, like, you know, disproportionate negative impact that Palestinians are experiencing as a result of all of this. Yeah, and acknowledging the history and also acknowledging that perhaps people who are not responsible for that history are suffering the brunt of the attack in a way that doesn't align with anybody's principles. So that was a pretty big deal. Yeah, pretty big deal. I've seen a lot of the comments that are still very much so calling this what it is, which is a very kind of middle of the road position. But the full interview with Obama comes out on Pod Save America tomorrow on Tuesday. But that is the latest for now. We'll be back after some ads. What a Day is brought to you by Viore. Viore Performance Apparel makes the perfect Mother's or Father's Day gift. 
Everything is designed to work out in, but it doesn't look or feel like it. And they're incredibly comfortable and cute and just the perfect thing to wear when I'm working from home or out and about, mostly at home because I'm not out and about. Yeah, yeah. I will say <laughs> I did not know clothes could be this is, I'm being dead honest. I did not know clothes could be as comfortable as they are before I had Viore. Yes. Clothes could be so comfortable. Nobody told me. Smooth like butter. Soft. They're so good. On the skin. I, I just love living in Viore. Viore is offering What A Day listeners 20% off your first purchase when you go to viore.com slash wad. That's V-U-O-R-I dot com slash wad. And enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns. What a Day is brought to you by Ulta Beauty. This AAPI Heritage Month, Ulta Beauty is celebrating the joy of belonging, belonging to a community composed of intricate connections, belonging to our past and our future, to the heritage and birthright that is beauty. Ulta Beauty shines a light on the AAPI community, passing the mic to brand founders and creators to tell their stories centered on heritage, joy, and beauty. They carry AAPI-owned and founded brands like Live Tinted, Peach and Lily, Glamnetic, Tree Hut, and more. Shop AAPI-owned and founded brands at Ulta Beauty Stores and Ulta.com. Now let's wrap up with some headlines. Headlines. We have said it once and we will say it again. Grab your popcorn, your opera glasses, and your drink of choice because Donald Trump is set to take the stand in court today. The former president will be testifying at his New York civil fraud trial. And as a reminder, this is the case brought by New York Attorney General Letitia James, alleging that he and his company overvalued his assets and inflated his net worth by billions of dollars. And depending on how the case plays out, the ex-president could lose control of some of his properties in New York, including Trump Tower. We can only hope. Trump's testimony comes after his sons, Eric and Don Jr., took the stand last week. Both of them denied any involvement in their dad's financial statements. And next up at the family reunion is Trump's daughter, Ivanka, who's expected to testify on Wednesday. Now to some very devastating news in Nepal. More than 150 people were killed and 184 were injured in an earthquake in the northwestern part of the country on Friday night. The 5.6 magnitude quake toppled multiple buildings and some villages an estimated 90% of houses collapsed. The epicenter was close to the district of Jajarkot, where almost 200,000 people live in the villages, usually in remote hills. Thousands were left homeless after the quake and they spent Saturday night in the freezing cold. As rescuers tried to get aid into the hills, operations were hindered by the fact that many villages could only be reached by foot, and roads were blocked by landslides that were triggered by the quake. Earthquakes are frequent in Nepal, but this was the country's deadliest quake since 2015. Moving on to some labor news, SAG-AFTRA, the union representing Hollywood actors, is currently reviewing an offer that studio executives have called their, quote, last, best, and final offer after months of failed labor talks. That's according to a statement from the union's negotiating committee on Saturday. A source who's familiar with the new offer told the New York Times that it includes the highest wage increase the union has seen in 40 years, as well as increased pensions and health benefits. The deal also includes protection protections from AI, and most importantly, a way to determine performance-based residuals for streaming platforms. The negotiating committee said of the offer, quote, we are reviewing it and considering our response within the context of the critical issues addressed in our proposals. Though it's unclear when the union will make a decision, today marks the 116th day of the strike. 
And speaking of fair compensation and workers' rights, Uber and Lyft agreed to pay a combined total of $328 million to settle claims that they withheld pay and benefits from their drivers in New York State. This comes after a years-long investigation into the two rideshare companies led by New York Attorney General Letitia James. The probe found that Uber deducted sales taxes and black car fund fees from drivers' payments when really those should have been paid for by passengers. Lyft did the same by deducting a quote-unquote administrative charge from drivers' fares. The money will be paid out to Uber and Lyft drivers who were cheated out of fare compensation as back pay. Thursday's settlement also guarantees an earnings floor for drivers, meaning that they will receive a minimum pay rate that will adjust each year with inflation. James released a statement about the settlement on Thursday, calling it the largest wage theft settlement her office has ever won. She wrote, quote, these drivers overwhelmingly come from immigrant communities and rely on these jobs to provide for their families. The settlement will ensure that they finally get what they have rightfully earned and are owed under the law. And finally, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame gained some new and history-making inductees over the weekend. They include Missy Elliott, Willie Nelson, Sheryl Crow, Shaka Khan, The Spinners, and Soul Train creator Don Cornelius, among others. This year's 38th annual ceremony took place at Brooklyn's Barclays Center. It kicked off with a performance by Crow and Olivia Rodrigo, and it came to a close more than four hours later with a show by Missy Elliott, who became the first female rapper to ever be inducted. During her performance, Elliott graced the stage in a sequined gold jumpsuit and delivered hits on hits on hits like Get Your Freak On, Work It, Lose Control, and more. While it was an eventful night overall, there was also notable representation from Black and women artists, and it came only a couple months after Rolling Stone co-founder Jan Winner was removed from the Hall's board of directors after he said this in a New York Times interview about who he didn't include in his book of rock stars. Insofar as the women, I mean, they were just, none of them were as articulate enough on this intellectual level. Mm. He added that some Black artists, quote, just didn't articulate at that level, which, you know, he must not know his history of uh, where all of this wonderful music comes from. But that's fine. Take a listen to what Elton John's songwriting partner, Bernie Taupin, said during his acceptance speech Friday night in response. I'm honored to be in the class of 2023 alongside such a group of profoundly articulate women and outstanding articulate black artists. All right, Bernie. Yeah, I love that. I also, <laughs> I'm glad you think we're articulate, I guess. I'm going to say, we should just retire the articulate thing altogether. We got to let articulate go, <laughs> is all I'm going to say. I appreciate the vibe. And those are the headlines. One more thing before we go. Somehow, it is already November, and tomorrow, November 7th, is election day in key battleground states across the U.S. The media hype has turned to 2024. But that will not stop 2023 elections from having massive implications for abortion access, voting rights, and more. So if you or someone you know lives in Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky, Pennsylvania, or Mississippi, visit votesaveamerica.com slash years and make sure you are ready to vote tomorrow. Tomorrow. I'm saying it in all different tones. So like something sticks, you know, because <laughs> it's coming. Tomorrow is coming. 
That is all for today. If you like the show, make sure you subscribe, leave a review, and tell your friends to listen. What a Day is also a nightly newsletter, so check it out and subscribe at crooked.com slash subscribe. I'm Josie Duffy Rice. And I'm Travel Anderson. Today is a production of Crooked Media. It's recorded and mixed by Bill Lance. Our show's producer is Itzi Quintanilla. Raven Yamamoto and Natalie Bettendorf are our associate producers. And our showrunner is Leo Duran. Our theme music is by Colin Gilliard and Kashaka. 